So it's kind of started out as an experiment. And then unlike anything I've ever experienced in business, it was just a crazy, almost viral pop in terms of inbound demand to us for that service. This is Funded, a show where founders who raised millions in venture capital share the gritty side of what it actually took to get that money in the bank. I'm Jason Ye. Not too long ago, I was trying to get my ideas funded. And back in the day, I was a VC listening to founders pitch me for money. A huge advantage to fundraising is having raised before, right? The answer is yes, according to today's guest. But it's not for the reasons you might think because not a single one of Guy Friedman's past investors went for his current venture, SteadyMD, a telemedicine startup that just raised a $25 million Series B led by Lux Capital. Instead, it allowed him to go through fundraising with the zen calmness around rejection that makes some of the best fundraisers so successful. And Friedman's past experience raising millions for startups in the education space helped him see an opportunity that makes sense now, but felt like a pipe dream only a few years ago. Telemedicine made available to all 50 states. But in between his Series A and Series B, he and his co-founder made a pivot to that vision. Instead of growing a consumer-facing operation, he wanted to grow SteadyMD as a B2B platform. But flashback to 2016, and Guy just knew he had a good idea and a space he was excited by. With SteadyMD, um, I wrote my dad an email, and I didn't say, "What do you think this idea?" I said, "This is this is it. I know it, and I have to do this." And so I think when you have that moment, you sort of once you get experience, because I have hundreds of ideas. You know, I'm not one of those. Uh, I always find it um, interesting when people say, "I, I can't. I want to do a start, but I don't have an idea." I have like ten a day. It's just you know. Um, so I wasn't hurting for ideas that were all great, but there's these ideas in the category of, I hope someone else does this and I can just use it, you know, <laughs> or I can, I can, I can be a customer of this, but I don't want to build this. When I thought of steady MD, I just, I knew it. So I was just like, I have to do this and there's no stopping me or no, no debate about it. Can I, can I ask you a question and I'm going to make a guess and I could be wrong. When I look at your background, you know, you studied economics, went to business school at Wharton, like both, you know, Tufts and Wharton, both amazing institutions. And you went through a lot of just sort of high end intelligence based jobs. And you, you in fact were a part time associate at a venture capital firm. So you have a lot of this exposure to business, right? And opportunities. Would it be fair for me to say that when you started with Higher Next, that you maybe didn't have the passion for this industry and space that, that when you decided on steady MD, you had, I, I could be completely wrong. So just kind of, if you could go back to your first business, we'd love to hear how the starting points were the same or different. Yeah. So, so Wharton is kind of a, um, really well known for consulting and finance. I think I went to one consulting interview and then decided it wasn't for me. <laughs> I just didn't fit in there. Um, I really loved VC. That was really fun. But when push came to shove, I realized um, if I go into venture capital, I'm, I'm only doing it as a means to an end to start my own startup. And so uh, I said, why even, 
why even do that? You know, I think um, there's always this idea of like, get some experience to learn about the industry and then, and then, but I, or whatever. But I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All that. But, um, I think, uh, this is what I was meant to do. And this is all like, this is what I'm best at, which is creatively solving problems and launching companies and products, uh, and, and being able to get, you know, get things stood up and operating as, as quickly as possible. I think, um, I would have been fine in like banking or consulting, but I wouldn't have, excelled as much as I have in startups. This is just what I was meant to do. So I sort of realized that over, I interned and worked with this venture capital firm locally in Philadelphia, and then they ended up uh, funding my company. So, so it worked out pretty well. But in terms of what you chose to start with, like, do you remember the decision matrix and, and how you came to online proctoring? Did you just have this burning passion yeah, for well, don't forget, online I started testing. a whole different yeah i started a whole different business before that oh, right so, right, right. Um, certification were, yeah, sorry ori- online certification yeah. the original idea was um actually what i raised all the money on and similar to study md it, it, there was a pivot after the initial fundraise but i had this idea around, i wanted I, I was exploring online education and i just got obsessed with like standardized tests and the idea of um there's a brand that's very, it has dominant design basically. Once everyone establishes this score as the admission criteria to get into X school or X, X profession, uh, certification exams as well as entrance exams, it's like, as long as the exam, you, you, you keep it up, the brand is super strong in terms of creating dominant design. So I just got this like thing in my head where everyone graduates from college and GPAs and degrees are completely unstandardized. Even within the school, we need a like an SAT or an AP test to enter the corporate world. And so that was the original idea. Kind of just add a million ideas. That was just one that that uh, stuck out to me. Is like I can be the father of a standard. I can be the, the the original for a standardized test that could last hundreds of years. And just be just that that that's what got in my head that's what i raised money on that was like the big the big idea and then um and then suddenly you got to administer it so how do you administer a standardized test you got to go to online uh in-person proctoring centers just like you do the gmat or gre so i signed a contract with one of those and then i i actually used proctor u for the for a little bit so i'm like okay how do we move this online and lower the cost and then in kind of a silly way, I said, let's just build our own online proctoring system. So we built a, we built a very rudimentary online proctoring system and then um, got a little bit of traction and proctor you bought us. That, that is a funny arc. You know, um, sometimes when I'm talking to founders and trying to help them understand how good they are, gonna, they're going to be at fundraising. What I'm trying to find out is like if they have like a deep expertise for a space or a very core excitement and like passion for whatever. And you fit into this third category, this category of like curious business operator, like high performing operator that sees opportunities and feels like he can execute, he or she can execute on them. So earlier this season, I talked to Christina Cassiopo, um, who's the founder and CEO of Vanta and built this amazing business in SOC 2 compliance. And we talked about, I'm like, are you passionate about SOC 2 compliance? She's like, no, I worked at Dropbox. I worked at Union Square Ventures. I just like seeing opportunities and executing on them. 
And for me, when I hear it, when I look at your background and I see what you did, you do fit into that, that category, which I actually find to be really hard to identify in a first time founder. Like it's hard to know whether or not someone will have it in them to be able to like run the playbook and execute and be comfortable with that pivot, always comfortable with like just searching out and sniffing out when there's a great opportunity to execute against. And I think, you know, there was, it sounds like there was a pivot in, in steady MD too, but with a company under your belt, were you able to like run the company for three years and learn and make all those mistakes? Right. But combining that with something that is probably a little bit more core to something that you really wanted to do, which was be within the next generation of, of health tech and, and actually help people is probably a supercharging combination that I think would be so powerful within your ability to fundraise as well as execute on the business. Yeah, no, I think, um, of course, if you're an industry expert in something that's different, but um, I do think you have to, it's really hard not to care deep. It's hard to just make an intellectual exercise. And that's um, a lot of times when I talk to MBAs, sometimes it gets a little too um, intellectualized. I'm like, guys, you know, wake up in the morning and just like be obsessed with this problem, not just solving it because it's a brain teaser. Like you have to deeply care <laughs> about the mission or you're not going to make it like it's going to be really, really difficult to sustain your effort. And if, if it's just this like business case study you're doing and a lot of times that, that that's the idea is that sometimes, you know, some folks from the, um, MBA world or business world or consulting that they'll, they'll come up with something that works on, I call it, that works on the spreadsheet. That's my phrase, but I'm like, yeah, you gotta be obsessed with it. Uh, I'm just kind of obsessed with, I'd say, um, I love business problems and solving them, but also, um, taking a process like that and, and making it better and scaling that. Um, I'm always looking at, Every, every room I walk into, I'm starting to like brainstorm ways to, to make the business or the, or anything, anything work better and more smoothly and, and to improve it. So it's, it's kind of just like a, a mindset of mine. And then if you, you're going to be a lot more successful if you care deeply about the mission and problem you're trying to solve and want to talk to everyone about it. Um, also, I'm a little more introverted and shy. And so, but when it comes to my startups and ideas, I'm like, crazy aggressive telling everyone about it. So, um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's just like, I don't know if I could do that if I didn't believe so deeply in what I was doing. I I love that you brought that up. Um, I think great operators and honestly, great fundraisers can be introverted or extroverted. Um, and I think a lot of first time founders are really scared about their abilities to, sell their company, sell the opportunity, especially if they're an introvert. So maybe we can use this as a, a transition point to talking about raising your first rounds of capital for SteadyMD. I'm looking at the timeline of when things happen and there are just some interesting things that happen in the world around all, honestly, most of these pivotal moments of raising capital. But when you think about going out to raise for SteadyMD, the first bit of capital, which sounds like it was just kind of a pre-seed convertible note at the time it would probably would just been called an angel round right you know how how was that for you did you have a great network that would that you would you'd be able to rely on or or was it a struggle at all yeah so first uh, you know i hooked up with my co-founder and we we both put a little bit of money in just to start so that was like hire a first developer type 
you know, keep it going. Uh, not not paying salaries or anything like that to start. Get a V1 out the door. So that that was helpful to. Um, we were on our way to like building the first version of the product. It wasn't just us with no money at all, and we both were proven founders. He, my co-founder, has had multiple startup experiences under his belt, exits, big big rounds, all that. So we had a pretty good network. I would say um, it still is not. It's not simple. We didn't make three phone calls and just have the round. You know, the, even the seed round um, had to have a lot of meetings. You know, test the market, talk to all my old investors from my old business. I don't think any of them invested. Oh my gosh! Even though we had a good exit, so <laughs> so um, we made the rounds, talked to our internal networks, and started to raise like uh, you know small checks just to get just to get it going. What's it like to have been? a successful entrepreneur and going to pitch your last investors and get those notes. Like what was, what was the expectation going in? Yeah. It's, it's funny. Like after 10 years of this fundraising, like not much phases me. Like you, like I think er, the earlier you are in the process of being a startup founder, the more you take like every meeting, every word, as if it's like this well thought out thesis from the investor that they were versus just them having a conversation with you. And you're going to talk to 100 have 100 or 200 meetings to get this round done. And then maybe 10 of those meetings will result in a actual check. And so not much phased me. Like the second time around, I was just much more experienced in not getting too excited either way. You know, someone you have a bad meeting or a great meeting, not too high, not too low. Yeah, you basically work the funnel like like anything. And of course, there's people we really like that really wanted to come in. And uh, there's the first meeting where we're like super the investors, super excited, and then they never call you back. They all happen. That that stuff happens. Fine. Yeah. So um, I'm so used to it now. It's like also in the business, like ups and downs. I've been on a roller coaster for ten years, so I'm not. It doesn't doesn't phase me as much now as it did my first first time around. Like. The shock of someone saying yes was like a huge, you know, huge for me. It's like, oh my God, you're actually going to do this. And then, um, you know, when someone said no, I like analyzed, you know, analyzed it to death. Now, what did you do? How could you have made it different? Yeah. It also, um, it really, really helps to have a co founder. I did my first startup all by myself, solo founder, really hired, uh, never really hired like super senior execs, maybe, maybe a handful, but, um, just kind of was on an island. So it was just like, I was experiencing all of it, you know, all of it by myself. And then with, with my co-founder, it was a, a lot more um, productive, bouncing ideas off each other and like analyzing things. And then also uh, a lot more fun. You know, it's a lot more fun to have. And, you know, if you're going to be in a company for years and years, it's really good to have a great partner. So yeah, go through the highs and the lows with somebody. Yeah. We both had our network. So we were both, uh, we were both, uh, tapping our networks to see who, who would invest. And it was, it was a lot more fun the second time around. Well, well it sounds like the, the seed round, um, you know, was a bunch of just numbers game, making sure that you could piece together these checks. Let's talk about the series a, because at least from what I see online, the timing would have been interesting when you closed the announced date, at least was April 2nd, 2020. You know, a couple months prior to that, the the world like got flipped upside down. 
tell me a little bit about what caused you to go out to raise the A. Like, you know, what was the, the st- setup point there, the trigger point? And what was the timeline around that? Well, we actually closed. Well, we got the whole A committed before COVID in 2019, I guess. So um, because we didn't announce it, we did get kind of a fun press you know, uh, not that we promoted it as such, but uh, there was a lot of press saying, look at this telehealth company that raised right when COVID hit, um, as if we did it all in one week, but it really took a while. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, we had a um, great, great seed investor in, in Pelion Ventures. They co-led the A as well. Uh, we, we met, you know, the, we did the normal process. We met with hundreds and hundreds of funds. Um, not easy in digital health to in 2019, it was much harder to raise money. It just, just a whole different world than today where you see like these crazy huge rounds for companies that are a year old. Then you really had to show all the great SaaS metrics, you know, very solid growth. And one thing like you had to have a minimum revenue threshold to even get in the door, which um, a lot of folks will say it's based on like unit economics or the team. Typically that's after you've hit the revenue threshold, then they dig into that other stuff. So um, we got there and then we were able to solidify Pelion. And then after that, we got um, Next Ventures in the round as a co-lead, which is a, which is, which is a fun focus on like health and wellness. So that was a really great partner. And then we, we started gathering uh other folks as well. So a lot of our seed investors came back in. When we come back, SteadyMD takes off as the world shuts down. I spend most of my days one-on-one with entrepreneurs, helping them understand strategies that make a difference in fundraising. Some things vary from founder to founder because not everyone's story is the same. One thing I'm super consistent about, no matter who the founder, is making sure they send their decks and materials using a document sharing tool. And for that, I always recommend DocSend. DocSend lets you know what's happening with your deck after you send it along with real-time analytics and notifications. Did the VCs actually open it? What slides did they spend the most time on? And if you think it got shared with the wrong people, or maybe you made a mistake and sent it too quickly, DocSend lets you control access and make updates to content even after sending. Sign up for a free two-week trial at DocSend.com slash funded. That's D-O-C-S-E-N-D dot com slash funded. Okay, back to the show. Healthcare is in a unique spot in the VC world in the sense that nearly everyone is a customer. A single niche within the healthcare industry can turn out to be a billion dollar opportunity. And so now, in the middle of a worldwide pandemic that has moved many services and jobs online, it's a no-brainer that many doctor's visits would take place online. I wanted to know, did Guy plan to raise his Series B post-COVID, or is that just a happy accident? You recently raised a Series B, actually quite a large Series B. And to me, it feels like the shift in the 
industry and the way the world is operating is kind of all pushing in your favor. You're like, you're just on the wave. Tell me a little bit about what the last year or 2020 had been like for you. And then was the series B something that um, was thrust upon you or were just, is it just the timing and opportunity? Yeah, no. So we had been running this concierge virtual primary care operation for years. So for five years, we were running that business and it was growing methodically, really good, like cost of acquisition, retention, like all the, all these great numbers. We had uh, a lot of subscribers nationwide, but what we realized even before COVID was this idea that we could recruit, train, manage clinicians uh, in a really robust way. Um, we'd established and maintained all these clinical frameworks around referrals, labs, prescriptions, asynchronous care, synchronous care, urgent care, long-term care. So we, we, had, we had all these like operational clinical chops and then patient facing as well as provider workflow and management technology and a regulatory infrastructure in all 50 states. So all those things combined, we, uh, we realized we had a really great asset there that um, would be useful for the rest of the digital health industry uh, to help them scale and grow. So we sort of experimented in early 2020 with this idea that as a way to augment our consumer business, we could um, allow our clinicians to work on other platforms, given all this infrastructure we've built and help the other platforms with some of their capacity issues. So it's kind of started out as an experiment and then um, unlike anything I've ever experienced in business, it was just a crazy, almost viral pop in terms of inbound demand to us for that service. No way. So was that, is that the pivot that you, that you lightly referenced before? That was it. Yeah. So we went from a direct to consumer business, uh, which we still, we still operate, <laughs> but um, just got called by, you know, everyone in the industry because there was almost it was almost like there was a rumor that there was a, a company out there that had a tech enabled clinician workforce that could execute really well and so we just started signing clients in that space we we really didn't do this considered rollout pivot we just took our existing team we didn't really even change the website and started just executing so we were hiring like a two or three doctors a month for the consumer business and then we started hiring hundreds like for the plot we call it the Man. platform business it's like kind of like the aws play right like you you were like building a technology stack for yourself yeah exactly so um if you think about what's a what's a great business in the digital health space or any spaces do something like really complex and rigorous that doesn't help the core client or partner sell more of their product or as a core competency of theirs it's just like their cost of doing business. So in order for any digital health company to operate, whether it's labs, devices, um, obviously prescriptions, long-term care, virtual primary care, anything, you need a licensed clinician in the state where the patient lives in order to execute that transaction or have that visit. And that's actually a really hard thing to accomplish. It takes years to get a 50 state network hired, all the regulatory infrastructure set up, and then you constantly need to be recruiting and training those clinicians and taking a big risk on the cost side to, to maintain that network 
and capacity. So we do all that for our clients. And um, whether you're big or small, it's a really needed and valued service in the digital health space because it's just like uh, we save them so much time, effort, and money by, 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 by doing that service for them. So we're, we're executing across the whole industry right now. I, you know, it's funny when, as I, as I was asking you the question to, to tell me a little bit about raising the next round, I kind of was, I, I made this reference to being on the wave at the right time. And, um, I kind of thought it was just COVID, but it, it was even more than that, right? Like you weren't even trying. I, I recently took up surfing and I had one of my first waves that I caught was, I wasn't trying to, I just happened to be on the board at the right time and the perfect wave hit me. And it was just like, I I guess I'm on, I guess I'm on this wave. I should probably stand up and surf this wave. And it sounds like you, you ran into something really similar. So as it just started happening, you, you said you weren't even proactively building that business. You didn't even change the website. It just started getting this viral pop where did you realize like, we should hire money for this go to market. Like we should hire, you know, I sorry, we should raise money for this go to market or did it just kind of, you know, people start hearing about you and start reaching out. Was it a proactive round or, or was it something that kind of organically came together? Yeah. I think it's just like, um, you know, at every inflection point you kind of reassess and we, we definitely like needed capital to hire the right team to keep executing. Yeah. Imagine going from, a handful of clients to a lot more, uh, all the infrastructure and team needed to support that, um, support hundreds of clinicians yeah. across different categories and manage them. And, um, and so I think the, there's just a, you know, we're hiring, um, I think we went from 20 people, 25 people at the end of the year. We're at like 75 now, I think, or maybe more. Wow. I, I mean, so, um, just like staffing up as quickly as possible to help support our partners and, and all the projects we're doing. Um, I would say though, it, it wasn't, uh, there was a move that we had to lean in to the business. Um, so it wasn't all just the surfing metaphor. Uh, I think, um, you, 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 you see what you have. And then obviously like over the years I've learned how to identify, Oh, that's something we should lean into and expert and, and, and you do a million experiments. Um, yeah. if you would have asked me at the beginning of the business, what's the pivot you might do eventually if the consumer business isn't, isn't uh, viral, I would have said the chat app and the technology would have been the thing that, Oh, that we can lean into that and always have a business around. Like I wouldn't have said the, the, inf- the provider network infrastructure and management tools around that. But, um, so we could have gone a few different ways, but, uh, we saw the signals and leaned into it. Um, it's pretty, pretty cool. Um, pretty, pretty fun. Of course, the COVID tailwinds greatly accelerated. Uh, I do believe even without COVID, we would have still leaned into that direction though, because we were doing it even pre, even before COVID started. And what does a what does a fundraise feel like when you have some of those numbers? Is, is it, does it feel different? Of course. Yeah, I mean, think, uh, <laughs> Tell me about that. Yeah, no, it's just it was a lot. Um, you know, I, I've been fundraising for a while for like you know multiple rounds across my different startups, um, and this this by far was like 
where, where uh, we were pursued the most, I think, because a lot of uh, VCs were looking for something like the picks and shovels of the digital health industry or the um, infrastructure play. And we, we were really like, we slid right into that thesis. So I think um, we were, a lot of times we, I started to pitch the company and not a lot, but like the best conversations were a, a lot of the, the venture capitalists looking at the space had already kind of like came up with a thesis for our business yeah. <laughs> and already had an idea in mind and they were looking for us, which is totally different than let me convince you that like this brand of virtual primary care is going to take over the consumer world, which is still a really good, solid venture backed business that is, uh, you know, we were growing and we, we could have scaled that as well. But um, in this case, it was like super clear to everyone like, oh, this is this is a this is a winner. Right. And, and oh, by the way, like we have the same vision, but oh, by the way, here are the numbers to show it's happening. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah. <laughs> everything is about telling a story and everything from your background to how you tell the story to the insights you have to the numbers. They're all trying to support a story and you can, you definitely get things done without the numbers and telling stories, but things just change when you have that sort of hockey stick growth. It's like, sure. that's a really compelling story. Um, very cool. And you ended up closing uh, from a few great funds who led the series B and, and who'd you bring on? Uh, it was uh, Dina Shakir at Lux, Lux Capital. Yeah, she's awesome. Um, we're so like blessed to uh, work with her. Um, she's you know very hardworking and really really understands the space. Probably the premier investor in digital health, I'd say right now, and of all VCs. Very cool. Um, and I've met them all. <laughs> Obviously, I, I respect everyone, but I, I put her number one. That's fantastic. Given your experience both operating companies and fundraising, and having such a variety of of different experiences while fundraising. What's, what's one or two things that you wish you knew as you were, you know, as you were thinking about raising for, um, higher next, um, things that you would tell a younger guy, um, that would, would have helped the process go forward or, or maybe something that you'd tell a young founder today about, um, you know, executing that process well and, and running the startups well. Yeah. Um, I'd say, um, one, one thing that's kind of a, a misnomer in the space is like, I think it's de-emphasized traction and revenue as, as just like, these are the table stakes to be in this conversation. And, um, and, you know, they obviously care about the team, the unit economics, the market size, like all that. But, um, a lot of times they're seeing so many deals. If you're a venture capitalist you know, 10 a day that their filter is that revenue number. And so you, you, th that's what you're executing against to get to the next round. A lot of the time, um, I think of course, like, like you said, there's a, a bigger story when even, I, even in the, in the later rounds, there's a bigger story about like, here's the market opportunity. We're well positioned to attract and attack this and capture it. But I'd say early on that the filter of VCs, uh, I think they, they're less likely to tell you that revenue is that filter. Um, of course, then, then you, then you have to be in terms of like, uh, vibe with the team, make sure you're culturally aligned, make sure, you know, that they, they agree with your vision and business moving forward. You can work with them for years, all that. Um, 
that's one thing that kind of stuck out to me over the years. Yeah. And I, th- and I think different rounds have different table stakes too, that, that people need to understand. So like if you're, if you're going after angel and pre-seed where you're not going to have certain like revenue, like, can you think through what the table stakes of what people need to believe and people need to see before they can even consider the round? Um, it's a really good sort of pragmatic piece of advice. Yeah. I would say, um, that, that, the earlier you are, the more it's about you and are you the right person to lead this business? I think like table stakes is your business model works mm-hmm. and they believe it. That's just, that's like, if you're arguing about that, uh, it's probably not a good fit. <laughs> you know, if it's like, I find it really rare you convince someone to invest if their initial instinct is, um, like you, you'll, you'll get the VC hits of, they'll ask you questions completely unrelated to what you just said in your pitch, right. like about some <laughs> other industry that you're, you know, or they'll dig into the, the very edge case, like, um, that has nothing to do, like, that's not even a consideration. Usually those aren't going to work out. Right. In those cases, I think that the investor is just almost trying to burn time intelligently and like on your side, yeah. you, you totally yeah. understand like as an experienced fundraiser, you kind of know that feeling in the first five minutes of like, Oh, is this, is this going down the right path? And I think that's another great call out. Yeah. If they're, yeah. If they're leaning in and paying attention, asking like intelligent questions, um, that's a really good sign. Yeah. If it feels like they're just having a casual conversation with you and asking random questions, uh, typically that that's not going to result in a, in a, in a fruitful relationship. That was my conversation with Guy Friedman, the co-founder of SteadyMD, a telemedicine company on both the patient-facing and provider-facing side of things with doctors in all 50 states, helping clients navigate their local regulatory and legal frameworks. If you've ever had to call your insurance and get a straight answer on something, you can imagine how hard it might be to understand the rulebook on insurance and everything else that falls under healthcare. Suddenly, we understand the need for SteadyMD, a picks and shovels business helping customers build more and better telemedicine services. When we come back, my producer Olivia, who's far, far, far outside the VC world, asks what it's like to fundraise when your business model is undergoing a major change. Early on at my last company, we had the chance to sell into a large public company, but ran into a wall. They wouldn't work with us unless we were SOC 2 certified. We really tried for weeks to get something done. We were Googling how to get SOC 2 certified and interviewing expensive consultants. But in the end, we abandoned the deal because it was too distracting. So when I learned about Vanta, a company that was just backed by Sequoia, used by hundreds of SaaS startups to get SOC 2 certified, I was so annoyed. I mean, I really wish they had been around back then. Vanta makes it super easy to get a variety of certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, the certification we needed to get, and HIPAA. They integrate with your cloud provider and other tools you already use to automate the super complex and time-consuming process of preparing for an audit. Anyway, if you'd like to drop a months-long process down to weeks like I would have back then and actually sign those major contracts, you should check out Vanta. Also, I'm really happy to share that listeners of Funded get hooked up. You all can get $1,000 off your service by going to vanta.com slash funded. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash funded. 
Okay, back to the show. Okay, I wanted to start with a few, there were a few terms in this that I, I'm kind of embarrassed because I think that We've covered we went this over before this in and, season uh, one. Gosh, I'd been, you know, I'd been raving about how good of a student you were. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't remember. Okay, it, hockey stick growth just means like <laughs> very good growth, right? It means very good growth because hockey players are great athletes. So, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Oh, okay, yeah. I was like, aren't all, if you're a professional athlete, you're a professional I'm, I'm athlete. Like, yeah, no, it's the, the, the shape of a hockey stick <laughs> goes like this. Oh, so it's like essentially highly accelerated growth from like flat to almost vertical. Okay, well now I'll remember it. Okay. Uh, don't mean to uh, dig it in, but I feel like I wasn't given that visual the first time around. And now that uh, I have that visual, I will You had the visual of someone skating. Forget it. Okay. <laughs> Um, the other thing was you guys talked about the table stakes. Okay, mm-hmm. wait, and now that I've said it out loud, I feel like I might have had a breakthrough. Does that just mean the necessities to get someone to sit down at the table? That's right. I guess that would be a I poker see. analogy, but it's like in certain poker games, to even play the game, you need to put X dollars into the table. So those are the table stakes. I see. And what we were talking about is that different rounds, Yeah. you know, earlier, later, later, what do you even need to be able to be considered for investment? And we were saying early, early on, it's like, I was saying, you know, a great vision and story and, and um, connection to the business and, and Guy added also a business model that made sense. And he was saying later on, especially as when, when he was raising his, his B, it's like, Table stakes were just to have a certain level of revenue. Yeah. If, if you didn't even have that, then like there's no point in even going out. Wait, so is that, but let me, sorry, this is a little granular, but are the table stakes an actual doorkeeper to getting the meeting? Or is it just that like, like, for example, do you have to prove your revenue to get the meeting? Or is it just that mm. you'll get the meeting kind of regardless but you might just not get the investment or are there like how does it work like are there emails exchanged ahead (laughs) of time where you have to prove the revenue or is it just something those are the table stakes in the meeting or is it the table stakes to get the meeting that might seem you might think that that sounds like a silly question it's a really good question um the fact of the matter is there are no formal table stakes there isn't a form that you fill out and you say hey this is my revenue or hey this is my business model yeah and in fact like we were discussing table stakes and we we had a bit of a we had a bit of a um debate about what was required at each stage and i think it's very very subjective okay so it is you can get meetings you can start the process but when we talk about table stakes, it's kind of like once you get into it, it's like, will will an, an investor take you seriously? Mm-hmm. That's kind of the, the way I would think about it. Do you have the table stakes to have an investor take you seriously? You might be able to be introduced to them, but once they see like you're at a, you know, you're not this, you're not that, they, they probably won't consider you. The thing that I'd point out though is, you know, we may on average believe that to do a series B, you need to be 
scaling towards X million dollars of annual revenue. But the fact of the matter is there is there are always outliers. There are always um, there are always situations where people are able to convince an investor without some of those quote unquote table sticks. And, and that's where I think like story and charisma and, and vision kind of always have uh, a plan X factor. No, that's cool. That's cool. I have one more question for you. And I think it's actually kind of like a big one. Um, so between um, his series A and series B, Guy kind of changed the business model of SteadyMD where it went from a patient or a consumer facing business to that, but then also a B2B. And I was wondering how often does that happen? Like in my mind, that seems like it could make a series be challenging, but also that might be a lot of the reason why people like that might be why people have a series B is because they are trying to grow in a new way and they need fundraising. So is that, can you just tell me about like the prevalence of that and if that does make a fundraise challenging or if that's kind of expected with a series B? Yeah, I think the first part is the evolution of his business, I think is actually pretty prevalent or it's mm. it's commonplace. Um, the first part of, of landing in an industry and working on one thing and then shifting to another is actually pretty prevalent because what you do when a startup is you have an idea and you want to help a certain type of user. And when you jump in there, you think the first problem is the biggest problem. You're like, well, you're working in there, you're working in there. And as you're working, you happen to be so deep with the customer that you notice that there's actually a bigger problem. Like there's actually something that is of higher concern to them. And then you, you can start saying like, actually, like they need this more, they want this more, they're willing to pay more for this. Let's start working on that. I'd say a ton of businesses sort of evolve that way. And so the second question you're asking is, is does it happen during the Series B or does, is that common for the Series B to be connected to that? I think it's less um, common for a, a round to be connected to that that pivot point. The Series B will almost always happen when there is like revenue that's scaling, that's that, that's actually hitting something that looks more like a hockey stick. Um, and it could have, you know, the pivot in the business or the evolution of the business could have happened well before or right before. And so Series Bs aren't, aren't actually connected to that, um, that actual event. Okay, gotcha. I guess I have one more question for you and it's do you ever do you ever see doctors online is this something that you i feel like you in my mind i feel like you are so like silicon valley like man of the future that like you probably do everything online so like have you made this leap yourself you're right i i would be somebody that would <laughs> really hyper like hyper efficiency not want to spend time commuting to a doctor's <laughs> office and try telemedicine the i for whatever reason i've been less drawn to telemedicine mm. for myself but i have been super interested in picking up a telemedicine provider for my dog oh interesting okay because can't talk to my dog and so like you're 
And Wait, especially Jason, as a new I'm just dog realizing parent. like I don't even think I knew you had a dog. Oh yeah. It was a it was <laughs> a uh it was a COVID pandemic. Oh, pickup. okay. But it's it's been great. It's a huge evolution in my life. But as a new dog parent, you're like are they supposed to eat this? They're like scratching their face yeah. against the floor. Like, I just want someone to be like, that's fine. Or maybe <laughs> you should bring it. Thanks so much for listening. There are tons of insights that each founder we cover on Funded has around startups, fundraising, and life. And we don't have time to cover it all. So if you'd like to get a free insights pack based on Guy Friedman from SteadyMD, go to fundedpod.com slash SteadyMD. If you're looking for more insights, strategies, and support around fundraising, subscribe to our weekly newsletter at fundedpod.com slash newsletter. And find me on social. I'm at J-E-A. That's J-A-Y-Y-E-H on almost every platform. I respond to newsletter replies and DMs, so hit me up. This episode was produced by Olivia Reingold. Hi from Florida, where I'm about to play Settlers of Catan with my family. Thanks also to John O'Lee from Adamant Ventures. Hello, friends. And thanks to Guy from SteadyMD for helping people like me avoid those annoying IRL trips to the doctor's office. As always, one last thanks to our sponsor, DocSend, the most trusted document sharing platform. 